Well, good morning. Welcome to our Sunday School Hour here at Long Hill Baptist Church. We'll continue this morning uh, our study through the book of Acts. The book of Acts this morning, uh, of, of course, records, among other things, the great missionary uh, journeys of Paul. We've, uh, over the past uh, couple of weeks, uh, seen Paul's first missionary journey and numbers of churches planted, praise God, uh, Paul traveling back through those churches a second time to, uh, to build them up, to disciple them, to encourage them. And now he's uh, back home uh, at his sending church, uh, the church of Antioch, giving a report there. Uh, and while he's there, evidently uh, some um, Jewish men, commonly we'll call, refer to them as Judaizers, those who uh, desired or, or believed uh, that the law still needed to be uh, kept uh, for salvation. And part of this debate seems to be whether or not the gospel should even be taken to the Gentiles. Uh, and so we see here in chapter 15, chapter 15 this morning, uh, Paul uh, and others dealing with this question. Do, uh, does circumcision need to be honored? Should the gospel be carried to the Gentiles? Uh, Zach, I'm thankful this morning the gospel was carried to the Gentiles like us. And so we'll see here how this matter uh, is resolved. Let's go ahead and open in prayer. We'll jump in here uh, at Acts 15, chapter 1. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you this morning uh, for the privilege to see how uh, this issue was resolved. And Lord, we see um, uh, you uh, using your words uh, and using a pastor uh, and using uh, men who were humbly willing to receive counsel from one another. Uh, Lord, all principles that go to solving uh, disagreements uh, in church matters. And so I thank you this morning that we can see uh, your way to resolve uh, disagreements within a church. And uh, we praise you for that. Father, help me now. I pray that you help each a student of your words now, each hearer of your words. Lord, help us to uh, take away the principles, to uh, have those things clear in our minds, and Lord, help us uh, be prepared to practice these things uh, when there are disputes and difficulties. Lord, I love you. I thank you for the privilege uh, to serve you this morning. Lord, it is a privilege. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we are here this morning in Acts chapter 15. Uh, beginning in verse 1. Here we see that conflict. Verse 1 says, And certain men uh, which came down from Judea uh, taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And so they were, uh, these so-called Judaizers were literally teaching that circumcision uh, was required for salvation. Now, uh, consider what you know about the law and what God has revealed about his purposes for the law. The law uh, could not save. Uh, of course, if, if someone could keep the law perfectly, they would continue to be saved. But the Bible is clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the law, uh, forgive me, the Bible is clear, Zach, as you know, uh, that the, the law is a schoolmaster, quote unquote, a schoolmaster, uh, to teach us something, to teach us that we are sinners, uh, who need a savior. And so, Brother Ray, it does not make sense that uh, keeping uh, this one aspect of the law uh, would factor into our salvation. We know from Ephesians that we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, faith, repentance and faith, 
uh, are required for salvation, but uh, religious uh, acts, deeds, including circumcision, uh, well, it's never anywhere implied in Scripture, uh, including anywhere in the Old Testament. Is it ever implied that uh, this would be required for salvation? Uh, and so we understand, with the benefit of the completed canon of Scripture, that uh, sal salvation did not require circumcision. Now, uh, at this point in, in time here in the first century, these men did not have the completed uh, New Testament, and so uh, we might understand their struggle a little bit, but um, let's go on here and see. Uh, verse 2, uh, uh, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disput disputation with them, uh, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to uh, Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. And so there's a determination made that um, uh, they will seek the apostles uh, in Jerusalem. Now recall that uh, the, uh, the ministry of apostleship was a temporary, uh, in, in the sense of uh, first uh, century apostles, this, this is a temporary office, uh, and, and the apostles do have uh, a temporary authority. Uh, and so this is part of what factors into the decision here. Um, and so we see that there is a desire that they would go to uh, sort of the, the mother church, if you will, in Jerusalem, uh, and that there will be a debate there about the issue. Men will give their opinion, and uh, we will see James appeal to Scripture, and as the um, the pastor, uh, the lead pastor of that church there, the head pastor of that church at least, uh, he will give forth his sentence, the Bible says. And so uh, we see here uh, the principle of pastoral authority and the pastor's responsibility to uh, receive counsel and to apply the word of God to his decision regarding spiritual matters also. Verse 3 says this, being brought on uh, their way by the church, they passed through Phenis and Samaria declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they cause great joy uh, unto all the brethren. So uh, at this time, uh, maybe ironically, that there is a dispute about the Gentiles and circumcision. Uh, Paul and, and Barnabas and others on their way to Jerusalem go uh, declaring that salvation ha has been offered now to the Gentiles, uh, and some have been saved, and, and there's a great joy uh, there, there's a great joy in response to this. And of course, uh, the offer of salvation is, is one that should cause joy in our hearts. And the fact of people being saved, the report of people being saved, is, is a thing that should cause joy in our hearts also. Verse 4 says this, When they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church, the Jerusalem church, uh, and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things uh, that God had done with them. And so they gave a report uh, to the, the church uh, in Jerusalem. And now, beginning in verse 5, we see this question debated. Is circumcision uh, required for salvation? And really, of course, the question would be uh, specifically for, for Gentiles who have not yet been circumcised, which seemed to be uh, the specific question uh, at hand. Verse 5 says this, but there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, and of course, this was that super legalistic uh, sect of Judaism, uh, which believed, now they're, they're believers, this particular sect of Pharisees, they, they claim to be believers, 
Uh, and yet, and yet, they also claim, according to verse 5, that it is, quote, needful to circumcise them uh, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And so it would seem to be the case that this particular sect of believing Pharisees uh, is agreeing that uh, keeping the law, including the matter of circumcision, uh, was in fact necessary. And because the question that we see back up in verse 1 is specifically about salvation, uh, we would see here that this particular sect of Pharisees, which believed, uh, is adding uh, works, uh, religious works, and keeping the law into uh, the salvation equation. Uh, and so, Zach, I would have to conclude that these men, as much as they, they believed in Jesus, that they have a false gospel. Uh, they have a corrupted, perverted gospel uh, that brings um, religious works and obedience to the law into the salvation equation. And of course, uh, we, we would call that a false gospel. Uh, they, they might have believed any number of things, but the minute they bring uh, keeping the law into the salvation model or equation or requirements for salvation, uh, now you have a false gospel. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders, uh, the pastors together with James, uh, the, the head pastor, came together uh, for, to consider of this matter. Uh, now, from verse 11, forgive me, 7 down through about verse 11, Peter rises up to speak. He, uh, he argues, uh, no, this will not be required. Yes, we should go to the Gentiles, but we should not require them to observe circumcision. Uh, he'll essentially argue, Brother Ray, that it does not make any sense uh, to yoke, is his word that he uses, the Gentiles to this requirement that never had any power uh, to save any Jews uh, through history. Uh, he says, listen, why, why would we yoke the Gentiles to the law uh, which the fathers of Judaism had not been able to perfectly keep uh, and could not save them? Uh, Peter understands the purpose of the law was to reveal uh, this truth. The law could not be kept, and therefore men need a savior. Trying to yoke them to the law uh, makes uh, no sense. So we see here in verse 7, when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter says, listen, you know that God called me to take the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. And so that should not be a question at all. Uh, he testifies, God called him personally uh, to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, and we've seen that. We've seen that already here in the book of Acts. Verse 8, he continues, And God which knoweth the hearts bear them witness. Uh, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. And so he says, no, uh, the, law, the law cannot save. It never did. It never has. Uh, it, it didn't save the Gentiles that uh, Peter was called to go to, Cornelius and others. Uh, he says in verse 11, this is really key, we believe that through the grace 
the undeserved, the unearned favor of God. Not, not the favor that was earned by keeping the law, but the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God that comes with repentance and faith. Uh, we were saved, uh, and they were saved, and so uh, it, it simply does not make sense practically or theologically or historically or any other way uh, that we would add the law back into uh, salvation. And we praise God for this. That This is important because uh, there, there's all sorts of people today arguing all sorts of arguments about what is required for salvation. Uh, repentance is required, a, a change of mind about sin, uh, turning, uh, turning to Christ, uh, and placing one's faith in him and him alone for salvation. That's what's required for salvation, uh, and we praise God for that. Repentance, of course, be a change of mind that results in a change of direction, placing one's faith in Christ, and uh, that's it. The law certainly not required. We're saved by grace through faith. Praise God. Uh, verse 12 says this, Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, uh, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles uh, by them. And so Paul and Barnabas also testify, hey, we've been sent uh, both to Jews at the synagogue and to the Gentiles uh, in the areas that God sent us. Uh, he caused us to uh, declare miracles and wonders and uh, to perform, he's declaring them here, he performed them there uh, among the Gentiles. And so uh, both Peter and Paul have said, listen, God sent us uh, to the Gentiles. Paul said the Lord saved them, gave them the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul said the Lord used us to perform miracles and wonders so that uh, the Gentiles in, in our journeys could be saved as well. And uh, he never bound them to the law or required salvation. Uh, for, forgive me, or required uh, circumcision uh, for salvation. The Lord never led them to preach anything like that. And so uh, you now have the testimony of, of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas to the contrary of the argument that is being made by these Judaizers. So um, Pastor James in, in Jerusalem uh, has heard, uh, he has humbly received um, arguments uh, from this particular sect of the Pharisees on one side of the argument and on the other side of the argument, Peter, Barnabas, and Paul. And having humbly heard uh, both par all parties on both sides of the argument, Bible says in verse 13, after they held their peace, James answered saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. He will now speak with uh, pastoral authority in the Jerusalem church. He says in verse 14, Simeon has declared how God uh, at the first did visit the Gentiles uh, to take out of them a people for his name. Uh, and then James appeals to scripture, specifically to, it would seem to be Amos chapter nine. Uh, Amos chapter nine, Old Testament prophet, uh, minor prophet of course, short, among the shorter prophets, not minor in importance we understand. Uh, James has, has heard counsel arguments on both sides of the equation, uh, and now he will apply scripture to the decision as well. Uh, beginning in verse 15, he says, and to this agree the words of the prophets. 
Uh, he says, as it is written, and we recall, of course, that phrase, as it is written, will always point us to an Old Testament passage. You recall also that the grammar of, of this statement uh, alludes to the doctrine of the preservation, the supernatural uh, Holy Spirit uh, uh, attended uh, preservation of Scripture. Uh, the phrase literally means was, is, and will be preserved. It implies that grammatically. Uh, here, alluding to Amos chapter 9 and verse 11, uh, James says, after this, he's quoting uh, from that passage, after this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, uh, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that or so that the, re the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles, hear that again, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Uh, and so uh, Peter, forgive me, James, James um, understands that this passage in Amos, uh, at least in a general sense, alludes to the Lord's desire that Gentiles uh, would be reached. Uh, and so part of the question seems to be, should we even be going out and uh, trying to reach Gentiles with the gospel? James says, well, uh, it's prophesied by Amos that this would be the case, uh, and it does seem to be that that is the Lord's will. He says in verse 18, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And, God, uh, and, and again, the idea here, this is prophecy. Gentiles would be reached, uh, and this certainly would, would appear to be consistent uh, with God's will. And so James has received counsel, number one. And number two, uh, he has evidently searched the scriptures uh, for scripture that would bear on his decision uh, as the pastor of the church, as one who would ultimately need to exercise pastoral authority, authority from God vested in the pastor, uh, a, a wise pastor who has received counsel and who has consulted the word of God will now give forth his sentence, verse, verse 19. And sort of like a judge, right? He's weighed the evidence. He's weighed scripture. Uh, he says, wherefore my sentence? That, that word sentence, the underlying word, could be understood as a verdict or judgment, an opinion in kind of a legal sense. Uh, wherefore my sentence, my decision, if you will, is that we trouble them not. We do not trouble these Gentiles uh, with uh, an argument uh, that they need to be circumcised for salvation. He says, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God? No, uh, we, we, we will not trouble them uh, with this aspect of the law. However, James says there are things, uh, there, there are certain things that they should observe, uh, certain, um, uh, certain practices uh, he wants them to understand, are not consistent with being saved. Uh, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, there are certain things that, are, that God does not desire, certain things that God would desire that they abstain from. He's not, God doesn't require them to be uh, circumcised, to be saved, but there are certain things that the Lord desires that they practice as people who have been saved. And this would be uh, this would be the thing. It's not for salvation, but rather things the Lord would have them to abstain from uh, as people who have now been saved by grace through faith. 
He says in verse 20, but that we write unto them that they should abstain from pollutions of idols. They certainly need to abstain from uh, the idol worship from which many were saved out of. And of course, we understand today, God is a jealous God, and, and, and that's okay. He alone is God. Uh, nothing else is worthy of worship but, but him. And so uh, they are to abstain from pollution of idols. Uh, they are to abstain from fornication. The underlying word is porneia, and it, it means in a general sense here, sexual immorality. Um, they're to abstain from any form of sexual immorality. Uh, in, it would include a physical relationship prior to marriage, would include impure thoughts, would include uh, adultery. Uh, today, of course, we would need to lump in the use of pornography, uh, wrong thinking, uh, all, all of these things, sexual immorality, uh, and from things uh, strangled. This is interesting because uh, this does allude back to the law, but uh, it's a little bit difficult to understand also. It might perhaps allude to things that died without bloodshed, and uh, this would be an allusion back to perhaps Leviticus 17, Leviticus 22, and uh, he says that um, um, the Lord desired that they would, they would refrain from that as well. The, the, the larger principle here is, is this, and I believe I've said it already, but, but permit me to say it again. Um, none of these things are required for salvation, but as saved people, there are certain things that God would have them to refrain from, certain things that he would have them to do, to attend church and so forth, uh, to worship the Lord, to demonstrate love to one another, to obey the Lord, to demonstrate love to the Lord, but there are certain things that the Lord would have them to refrain from uh, that would be consistent with their sanctification rather than their salvation. And of course, we understand the same is true today. Uh, you, you don't get saved by, uh, restraint, by um, not practicing fornication. But as a saved person, we are called to not practice fornication. We understand that. Uh, and it's through the Holy Spirit, the power, the sanctifying power, there we go, of the Holy Spirit that we can obey the Lord in these areas, not for salvation, but now because we are saved and the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit uh, to empower us, to enable us to live increasingly more holy lives uh, for his pleasure, for his honor, and for his glory. And so uh, we praise God for that. Look at verse 21, for Moses of old time hath in every city uh, them that preach him being read in the synagogues um, every Sabbath day. And so James gives forth his sentence as the pastor, humble pastor, who has received counsel, who has consulted the word of God, who has weighed those things, no doubt uh, prayerfully, uh, we don't see that, but no doubt prayerfully, uh, and then given forth his, his uh, sentence is the word that we see here. Um, now, it's, it's worth observing that he is practicing pastoral authority, the authority of a pastor to give forth uh, his sentence. And uh, we do well to be reminded that pastoral authority um, is clearly taught throughout the New Testament. Uh, myself, as a pastor, Brother Ray, I have no authority uh, beyond the authority that God vests in the office 
uh, of pastor. We see this in Acts 20 and verse 28 where Paul uh, is there addressing uh, the elders. He says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his blood. And so Paul reminded, reminded the Ephesian elders that God had made them overseers. Uh, in 1 Peter 5, uh, 2, uh, Peter is addressing pastors. He says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Uh, pastors are called to exercise their God-given authority with right motives. Uh, and then, of course, in Hebrews 13, uh, chapter 13 and verse 17, uh, we find the Lord's instruction that church members honor, uh, they have a responsibility to the Lord uh, to honor, to obey the authority that the Lord invests in pastors. There the Bible says uh, to church members, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy, not with grief, for that is unprofitable uh, for you. And so uh, this is part of God's plan to invest authority in pastors. Uh, certainly it's God's plan that pastors would practice that authority as James did, not as a dictator who refuses to receive counsel, uh, not as a man who uh, acts upon his own impulses, but who acts according to the word of God, uh, receiving counsel and then acting according to uh, the word of God. And then, of course, it is the responsibility of church members to honor uh, that authority. I think pastors understand, uh, loving pastors understand that that's, that can be a very difficult thing uh, for church members. We're naturally disinclined to honor any authority. We all naturally desire to be our own authority. We all naturally repel uh, against any authority, and that's pride, of course, and it's all rooted in the sin of pride. Uh, Satan, of course, um, be the father of that, and uh, we see that in his, his rebellion against God uh, in heaven, rebelled against the authority of God, desiring to be his own authority. And uh, that, of course, is a struggle that, that all men continue to face today. Uh, and so uh, when we struggle with that, we confess that and say, Lord, I, I, boy, I, I struggle with authority. Uh, a woman, um, a wife may struggle with uh, her husband's authority. A church member may struggle with pastoral authority. Anyone may struggle uh, with uh, governmental authority. And yet, uh, these are all um, authorities that God has ordained for his good purposes. And when we struggle, we confess that. Lord, I, I confess that. I agree. Uh, and we say, Lord, give me grace. We pray, Lord, give me grace to... Uh, to yield to, to submit to, to honor the authorities that you have ordained in my life for my benefit, for your good purposes, including my benefit. Uh, that's, that's how we can have a, a victory uh, in that area. Well, we see here that now that James has given his sentence, Paul and Barnabas will return back to Antioch with a letter uh, from the Jerusalem church uh, capturing uh, this. Verse 22, then it pleased, then pleased it, the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men 
of their own company of that church to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, uh, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. They wrote letters by them after this manner. And here's the content. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard, verse 24, that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. Uh, James summarizes now in verse 25, it seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord in unity to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. And so it would seem to be the case that James has sent uh, multiple men back with Barnabas and Paul in order to uh, testify to the authenticity of the letter that is being sent by the Jerusalem church. Uh, multiple witnesses would lend credibility and confirm the authenticity of the letter. Um, that said, James takes care to credit the Holy Spirit with guiding the, his decision. Uh, yes, he's sending, sending a, a letter confirming the decision, but he takes care that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, gets credit for guiding the decision. Verse 28, he says, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Uh, and so what is implied clearly is that James uh, yielded himself the Spirit of God in coming to uh, his decision. Uh, his decision, he desired, would be God's decision, God's ruling on the matter. And so yielding to the Spirit of God uh, implied is seeking the Lord's guidance in the decision, taking care to follow the biblical principle of receiving counsel uh, and appealing to the Word of God, all the while, throughout the process, yielding to the Spirit of God, uh, he's come with his decision and now written it down for uh, these men. Now, one interesting observation here is that the letter that was sent, although it, it, he testifies it reflects the decision of the Spirit of God or the guidance of the Spirit of God, that particular letter would not be considered um, an inspired epistle. Uh, it's not part of the Word of God, Zach, except to the extent that it is recorded here within the book of Acts. That's just very interesting. I think this is the only place in Scripture where you would see the contents of a letter that wasn't inspired from top to bottom being sort of read into Scripture uh, under the inspiration process. A portion of the letter uh, is, is inscripturated here for us. It's just a very interesting observation that you can make here. Maybe someone else can think of another example or two uh, where that has been the case. If you come up with something, let me, let me know, please. I'd like to add that to my notes. Uh, verse 29, and here, here's the rest of the, uh, the sentence that James uh, summarized. He said, that you abstain uh, from meats offered to idols, okay, uh, and from blood. Uh, don't eat blood. Uh, that was a practice of idolatry and idol worship also. Uh, and from things strangled, uh, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Yes, you would do well. You would obey the Lord, not for salvation, but as part of your sanctification 
And then he says, fare ye well. That's the end of the letter. That portion, that much of it, uh, is read into the book of Acts by the Spirit of God as Luke uh, is penning it down. Well, the letter's delivered, verse 30. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle. And so uh, it is a letter to the church. The church is assembled together. And then the letter is read to the church, to the entire body. See the result. The result here, the church is encouraged, verse 31, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. Uh, They rejoiced that they were being uh, exhorted to truth and encouraged, uh, encouraged in that which God desires. Uh, They received this instruction uh, with joy, and they received it as Uh, godly exhortation and encouragement, not something uh, that would divide, although truth does divide from error. Uh, The church received this with joy. And of course, when when we consider that we have been uh, freed from observing uh, the the majority, at least, of of the law, that will cause us to rejoice too. Uh, We're not in the business of practicing all the sacrifices and keeping uh, every little detail uh, of the law today. I understand there's, uh, the moral law is, is, is binding on us today, the Ten Commandments and, and, and so forth, but um, we, we praise God that uh, we have been released from the obligation to maintain the ceremonial law, and that is a thrill. That is a joy indeed. Uh, Judas and Silas encouraged the brethren in verse 32. Uh, Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted, they, they encouraged the brethren with many words. They preached, they taught them and preached uh, and confirmed them. They strengthened them, they supported them in their preaching and teaching of God's words. Verse 33, after that they tarried there a space or a time. Uh, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles, notwithstanding it pleased Silas to abide there still. And so uh, he will stay evidently to continue encouraging uh, and discipling the church members there. Uh, Paul and Barnabas continue in Antioch for a time, teaching and preaching as well. Verse 35, Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching uh, the word of the Lord with many others um, also. And so uh, again, the teaching and preaching being the, the primary practice of the church, uh, this, is, this is the thing. Um, here also it's worth noting um, that um, there seems to be an allusion here to uh, evangelizing uh, as well. Uh, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Yes, they're teaching the church, the saved people, they're, they're building them up, but I think this may allude as well to uh, teaching the gospel to those who still uh, needed to be saved. Well, in verse uh, 36 here, we find Paul and Barnabas now uh, having built up the church at Antioch, uh, they propose to go and uh, revisit the churches that they have Uh, been to, some of them at least, on their first missionary journey. Uh, And this will really kick off uh, uh, the the passage recorded in chapters 15 through 18, uh, which records the second missionary journey. So chapters 13 and 14 were the, the first missionary journey. 
end of chapter 15 through chapter 18 uh, will be the second missionary journey. See verse 36, we're almost done here. Some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. This would be discipleship consistent with uh, that aspect of the Great Commission which Christ gave in, in Matthew. Uh, there's this contention here regarding John Mark, you remember this. Verse 37, Barnabas determined to take with them John, uh, whose surname was Mark. They're relatives, we see that in, in Colossians. Uh, but Paul, verse 38, thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. So. Uh, John Mark, Mark, this is the man who ultimately is restored to fellowship and is used of the Lord to pen down the gospel of Mark. Uh, he evidently started out not very faithfully. Uh, he had not been faithful to continue uh, in, in the first missionary journey. And so Paul does not desire that he would continue on in the second journey. This causes a dispute uh, with Barnabas and causes them to separate from one another and go in different directions. Verse 39, the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark, again a relative, and sailed unto Cyprus. Verse 40, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming, supporting further, or strengthening uh, the churches. And so uh, here we see that uh, Barnabas uh, is with Mark. They go off in one direction. Uh, and now here on the second journey, Paul is now traveling with Silas. And so uh, this, this initiates the second missionary journey, this uh, second great effort to go out and evangelize, uh, to plant churches, to importantly, to build up the churches that have been uh, planted uh, previously uh, and to, uh, in all of this, obey the Great Commission, which of course is, is binding on us today as well. And it's a thrill, it's a thrill to have God's direction and all of his help uh, to go out and perform the same mission that Paul was on here uh, in this great book. Let's stop there. Father, we thank you this morning for your words. Thank you for the principles that we see here uh, in this chapter. Uh, Lord, I pray this morning that we, we be reminded when there is a conflict to receive counsel and to consult the Bible uh, and to um, recognize the authority of pastors uh, as, as final decision makers uh, in churches. Uh, Lord, that is, a, that is a great responsibility um, that you lay upon pastors. And so I'll, I'll lift up pastors this morning and pray for them. I pray for wisdom for myself uh, in various decisions that, that we will make in the future. And Lord, I, uh, I look to you for uh, wisdom and courage and uh, strength to be humble and to receive counsel and to apply your words uh, as you desire, as you desire. Lord, we pray now for our 11 o'clock service. I pray that each one will come and be in place here for you. Uh, and to encourage fellow church members, uh, Lord, as you desire. Father, I love you this morning. I thank you for the privilege to serve you and look forward now to, to seeing our church family this morning. Lord, I love you and thank you and pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.